You can be seated. Kids, you are dismissed. You perhaps, well, one, those songs, a lot of old school songs in there. Uh, Anna, who led Indescribable, how old were you? Three when that song was released? So, <laughs> she, had, had you ever heard it before? No? Yeah. Oh, I wasn't a Christian when that one came out. So, that's an old one, like 2003. That's an old school song. Um, doing some hymns tonight. So, that's one of the themes going on. But maybe you notice the other theme kind of woven through those songs. Hopefully, the graphics help tie that together for you. We are talking about creation. We are talking about science and how that all connects back to God and us as Christians. Atheist Richard Dawkins, he's got a book called The God Delusion. Everybody's probably heard of that. And in that book, he's got a basic argument that you cannot be an intelligent scientific thinker and still hold religious beliefs. That's what he says. The other side of the coin, there's this guy, Ken Ham. He's a a Christian. He's a six-day creationist person. He says, you can't be a Christian if you believe the universe is more than about 6,000 years old. And so you got this guy over here, you got this guy over there. Guess who loves that? The media. They love it. They love it. When we got people on opposite sides of the fence, never mind, most of us are not that far either direction, but they love to push the two options. And so what happens as time goes along, then we begin to think, well, those are the only two options. You can only be over here. You can only be over there. There's no other options. And that's what leads us to our difficult question for tonight. Must we choose between God and science. Now, this one is pretty near and dear to my heart. I spent three years of college as a biology major. I was pre-med, and so I took genetics, I took botany, I took zoology, I took bacteriology, I took animal physiology, and yes, I took a class called evolution, which for all those other classes was kind of the foundation of most of all of modern biology. If it weren't for organic chemistry that kicked my butt, I'd probably be a doctor today and not an insurance agent, but I like being an insurance agent, so it all worked out. But part of my long, difficult journey to Christianity, because I did not grow up a Christian, part of my long journey to Christianity was dealing with this question of God and science. And not just that question, but the perception of what my friends would have once I became a Christian. That once I crossed over to Christianity and this belief in a supernatural divine being, that I was now dumb and naive. That was one problem. On the other side of the problem, these new Christians that I was meeting told me I needed to stop asking questions about science that were clearly answered in Scripture. But those clear answers didn't line up with what I had learned in the overwhelming scientific evidence. And so... The tough thing this week is knowing where to draw the line because I spent, I was telling Dwayne earlier, one of the benefits of preaching is I get to spend an entire week studying a topic and I encourage everybody to do that because it's pretty awesome when you really get to dig into and pour into something that deep. So my intrigue and my fascination took me down a lot of rabbit holes today or this week, but I only get 30 minutes to preach a sermon tonight. And I want to edify everybody that's here, whether you're a believer for a long time, whether you're a skeptic or a non-believer. And so I'm trying to avoid being oversimplistic, but not taking you so far down the rabbit hole that I lose everybody except for Dominic Leoti in the back, who was a microbiology major. So I'm trying to balance that as we go through the sermon this evening. How many have ever heard of old man strength? 
most old man's strength. As we get older, we start to realize it's this like sneaky kind of strength that you just don't know that you have. We lost an anchor offshore. Our, our thing that pulls it up broke this past weekend, and uh, I had to pull, you know, a, a 34, 40 pound anchor off the bottom of a 100 foot seafloor, and it's a lot heavier than you think coming up from 100 feet, but my old man's strength kicked in and somehow was able to pull that up. And I'd always heard about old man strength, and I did some research on it this week. It's actually just mental toughness as we, and we don't want to say old ladies because that's, that's kind of offensive, but you ladies have the old lady strength too. <laughs> But it's this mental, as we go through life, as we age, we begin to go through pain and trials and struggles, and we learn to get this mental toughness, to endure the pain that can push us through. I saw Mike Mungavin here, right there in the back row. He did an Ironman at, what, 62? Yeah, 62 years old, did an Ironman. Ironman is an older person's sport. Young people, they don't have the endurance and the mental toughness to do that sport. It's mostly people that are in their 30s and 40s and on up that do the Ironman. And I mean, let's be honest, those of us who, who are a little bit older now, we grew up with those things called merry-go-rounds on our playgrounds. I mean, if nothing's going to make you tough, those things, or teeter-totters, you remember those things? They beat us up. This God and science debate beat me up. When I was working my way through, am I going to become a Christian? Am I going to accept this God thing? It beat me up. It caused me some pain. It gave me more than one existential crisis. But through it and in the process, I think I have gained some old man spiritual strength. And I want to share that with you tonight. And I want to maybe help move you along to some old man strength as well. Often in the church, when we explore these difficult questions that we're going through this summer as a church kind of the church's response can feel like this. So first you'll get, of course you're allowed to ask questions. Here's the list of the approved questions that you can ask. And then you'll get, you're absolutely free to study and investigate yourself. Here's the list of approved sources to study. Or they'll say, well, we're not going to stifle your thought. We want you to learn everything you can so long as you reach the approved conclusions. I was talking to a new friend yesterday, and in part, why we started Refuge, so that it could be a safe place to wrestle with the difficult questions openly around God. And so if you came here tonight and you're looking for light and fluffy, man, you showed up at the wrong place. This is even a different sermon for me. I, I said maybe it probably leans less towards preaching and a little bit more towards a college lecture. But if you want to build some of that old man's strength, well, let's... let's let that pain begin. So science, let's start with that. Let's define it. It's the systematic study of the known world through observation and experimentation. That's what science is. We, we get it mixed up with all these other things, but that is the science that I'm talking about tonight. Don't mix it up with anything else. That's when I say science, that's what I mean. Or the collection of those observations and generally accepted proof from the experimentation and the observations. That's what I'm referring to tonight as science. I'm reading a book, and some of the stuff I have tonight is, is coming from this book. It's written by Carl Giberson. Uh, it's called Hints of God in Our Fine-Tuned World. He wrote this. He says, The prudent approach to science is to accept its central ideas as good descriptions of reality developed by scientists working with integrity who are motivated to find out how the created world functions. The central ideas in any scientific field, whether it be cosmology or medicine, have been hammered out this is important, have been hammered out by a community of well-informed and highly skeptical scientists. 
to achieve consensus with such a group is no simple task. And so again, when I talk about science, don't mix it up with the politicized science that you hear about now and you know, something that's been out for three weeks and all oh, science is okay on it and there's people all over the place. I'm talking about science that is a consensus over a long period of time. Who remembers the scientific method going back to maybe like seventh grade basic science? And probably none of you because you weren't science majors in college. I had a mnemonic. I don't know if anybody used mnemonics to kind of help, you know, learn things or memorize things. It's quickly run home eating chewy, gooey cookies. That was my mnemonic <laughs> for the scientific method, which, which is question. First part of scientific method is you question the world around you. And then you research that question and you, you see what else is out there and what's been done. And then you form a hypothesis. And then you do some experimentation. And then as you do that experimentation, you collect data. And then you graph and analyze that data. And that leads you then to some conclusions. We got here tonight, this little sustain pedal on this keyboard was not working. Essentially, I went through the scientific method to go through all those steps and figure out why it didn't work. We all do this in our life. We, we figure it out, we hypothesize, we experiment, we collect data, and then we come to some conclusions. reason I mention that is because of that, the scientific method, I want to make a statement. Most science is reliable. I'll make another statement. Most scientists do not have a grand conspiracy out against Christians or God. Our modern life wouldn't work very well if we actually didn't trust science. So think about anybody who's been on an airplane. When you get on an airplane, you accept that that gigantic piece of tubular aluminum is going to take you somehow in the air and safely to your destination. You don't look at it and go, hmm, the science, I don't know. You know, aerodynamics is just some socially constructed theory to get us Christians. You get on the plane and you get to your destination. That's what I mean when I say most science is reliable. And whether you know it or not, you agree with me because you're not going to argue with the scientific discovery that mammals are warm-blooded and they care for their young or that the earth revolves around the sun or that water boils at 212 degrees and freezes at 32 degrees if you still use Fahrenheit or that a circle's circumference to its diameter is pi. It's mathematical constant, 3.1415, whatever. And so let me make another statement then. This science that I just went through there is also a gift from God. Advancements in genetics, in neuroscience, in psychology, in understanding the physiology of the human body. And when we see that kind of science, it should cause us to stop and praise God for revealing the science. At Lasix, I don't know, 15 years ago or so, I can see that wall in the back, thank you science, praise God. That's pretty amazing that my eyes were lasered and now I can see. The phones that all you guys have in your pockets or wherever right now, all the physics of the first half of last century are validated every time you power up and use that phone. Thank you science, praise God, some days. <laughs> Praise God, my wife has a better quality of life because science led to the discovery that depression is a chemical imbalance and they came up with medicines to treat it. Praise God that Tom Stanick is living and breathing because science figured out that radiation can kill some cancer cells without killing the human being. Praise God. We don't have to choose, so I want to answer this question real easily. We don't have to choose between God and science because God created nature that the science reveals. 
been a long ways into the sermon. I haven't even given you any Bible. So let's go to the Bible. Psalm 19.1 says this. The heavens proclaim the glory of God. The, the skies display his craftsmanship. Psalm 148. I'm just going to read some selections from it. It's what our first song was based on tonight. It says, praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him from the skies. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you twinkling stars. Let every created thing give praise to the Lord, for he issued his command and they came into being. He set them in place forever and ever. Praise the Lord from the earth, you creatures of the ocean depths, fire and hail, snow and clouds, wind and weather that obey him, mountains and all hills, fruit trees, all cedars, wild animals and all livestock, small scurrying animals, birds, kings of the earth and all people, rulers and judges of the earth, young men, young women, all men and children. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name is very great. His glory towers over the heavens and the earth. Romans chapter 1, verse 20, Paul says, For ever since the world was created, people have seen the earth and sky. Through everything God made, they can clearly see his invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature. We get hints of creation, or we get hints of God in creation. The creatures, that beautiful sea turtle, that, that was a video we took in Hawaii, that, that creature See that, I get, I get a hint of the beauty of God. When we see a sunset, we get a hint of the beauty of God. We see a baby and they laugh, we get a hint of the beauty of God. But we get those same hints in science. You look at math and you look at physics and there's all this order and there's perfection. You know, math doesn't change a lot. It's perfect, it's orderly. We get hints of God. When we look at astronomy and just the complexity and the vastness and the awesomeness of the universe, we get more than a hint. I think, of God. Even as science learns more about our natural disasters and our human frailty, we get hints of God because we know in our soul when we see that stuff, that's not how it's so supposed to be. That's why we want to fix it. And so the church and the science, I don't think, are at odds and really have never been. In 1721, a virus struck Boston not the coronavirus, it was the smallpox virus. It was a beast of a virus, 30% fatality rate. That's 10, 20, depending on what quote-unquote science you believe on that. That's, that's a lot worse than the COVID virus. But there was a couple of Puritans. If you know anything about Puritans, they are as fundamentalist as they come. There was a couple of Puritans who wondered if maybe somewhere in nature God had provided a cure. And so they began experimenting with inoculations, taking somebody's blood from over here that had the virus and putting it into somebody else. That's where we get that from. These were fundamentalist Puritans. And when they did that, man, they got fierce opposition, not just from the church, but also from the science community. Some people said inoculation is doing violence unto the law of nature and the pattern which God has set. Some people said God has predetermined how long we are to live, and inoculation attempts to alter God's decree. But the Puritans, these ultra-conservative Christians, were open to science because of their core theological convictions. For them, science, observation, was an act of devotion and worship. Finding new reasons to praise God by growing in their understanding of his creation. Isaac Newton, you've heard of him. He was a mathematician, he was a physicist, he was an astronomer. He's a brilliant man, one of the most influential scientists of all time. He also was a theologian. 
if you didn't know that. Robert Boyle, the founder of modern chemistry, his deep love of scripture is what drove him to study and have interest in science. Galileo, we talked about a few weeks ago in a sermon, he's the father of really modern science. He was also a Catholic, which by the way is a Christian. He believed in God. But he discovered that the earth orbits around the sun. And when he discovered that, there was a big brouhaha and he was arrested for hypocrisy. Here's why. Psalm 93.1. This is the verse they used. It said, the world is established. It shall never be moved. That's the verse they used to call him a hypocrite. Now, they forgot the next verse, which adds context to that verse, and it's really just, just a song about God's faithfulness, number one. Number two, that verse is not meant to be science. And number three, an ancient Bible is going to give you ancient science whenever it does talk about anything with nature and science. The Bible is not some abstract, ethereal book that dropped out of the heavens and, and showed up with all this information. It was written, and it connected and spoke to people in ancient cultures. And so if we went to the Old Testament, we read about molecular biology, that would have made no sense to a nomadic tribal audience that that original book was written to. They didn't have microscopes. They didn't know what a mitochondrion was. The science for that had not yet been revealed by God. And so we need to understand that God's word can still be true even when, and I'm going to use quotation, even when the science doesn't hold up today, because the science was never the purpose of the message. Hope you got that, because that's a huge statement, and it gives some freedom and relief. For Christians, number one, we can let go of that unwillingness to accept modern science that may not always line up with some of the stuff we see in the Bible. Number two, though, and more importantly, atheists can't use the Bible as a weapon, or can't use science as a weapon against God's word because science was never the intention or the purpose of God's word. And so this week, not knowing kind of how or where to go with the sermon and how deep to go, I just posted on Facebook because this was a big question that several people brought up, said you'd like to have me preach on it as a difficult question this summer. Uh, I just posted on Facebook, well, within this God-science debate, what are the most popular things that, that you want to learn about, you want to hear about? And, and the two that, that rised up to the top, and not a ton of people did it, so shame on you if you didn't go on Facebook and vote. Do that next time. You can help pick the sermon. But those who did vote, pick these next two topics. I just took the top two, and, and I think they're probably everybody's top two. Uh, in the time remaining, we're going to talk about science as it relates to creation of the world and humanity. We're going to talk about science as it relates to miracles. And so the question with miracles is, aren't miracles scientifically impossible? It's a problem, right? Because miracles are central to our faith. Old Testament miracles, the incarnation, the virgin birth, miracles during Jesus' ministry, and most importantly, the resurrection. And so some will say that the Bible isn't reliable because science has proven there's no such thing as a miracle. That is a categorically false statement. Because science has never proven any such thing. Science is only equipped to test the natural world, not a divine being outside of our visible world who is now acting upon that world. God acts in more than one way in the natural world. The Bible says God sustains the pattern of the physical world, its natural laws, our processes, so gravity and photosynthesis, God sustains that, those natural processes, but sometimes God chooses to operate outside of those laws. 
And so it should be noted that biblical miracles are never purely for amazement. They're always within a theological context. Here's what I mean by that statement. Jesus' miracles were not magic tricks. They never were. He never says, hey, Peter, watch me pull a rabbit out of my hat. It's not the Rocky Bullwinkle thing. He never says that. Hey, Peter, let me, watch me turn this tree and it'll burst into flames. It's never how Jesus does his miracles. He uses his miraculous power to heal the sick. He uses his power to feed the hungry or even to raise the dead. And so with his miracles, what we see is he's actually beginning the redemption process. The world was never meant to have hunger. The world was never meant to have disease or death. And so it's proper for us to look at the miracles of Scripture, not as God suspending the laws of the world, but returning the laws of the world to the natural order and how they were supposed to be. I don't know if you got that or not, but hang with me here. We're going somewhere with this. This next one's going to be even more challenging. Psalm 104, 10. That's what that verse says. It says, he, talking about God, makes springs pour water into the ravines. He, God, makes springs pour water into the ravines. It flows between the mountains. First part of that sentence refers to God's direct action. He makes the springs pour Second part of the sentence speaks to water flowing through the natural law. reason I picked that sentence because in one sentence we've got God acting and the natural law at work within the same sentence. We go to Hebrews 1.3, it says, The Son, speaking of Jesus, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. Colossians 1.17 says, He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. So what we sang tonight, that last song we sang, You were the word in the beginning, the Lord God, the Most High, your hidden glory in creation, now revealed in Jesus Christ. If God were to stop sustaining all the things in our natural world, the world would stop existing. And so our existence, everything we see in Nature is a miracle of God. And since God is the maker and sustainer of nature, then he clearly has the right and the freedom and the ability to supersede those laws whenever he chooses. In the Christian faith, everything that we believe hinges upon a miracle. Romans 10, 9, I read it all the time. If you declare with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God, what? Raised him from the dead, a miracle, you will be saved. And so I'm usually not too blunt with things, but, but I got to be clear here, and I'm sorry, I can't leave the door open for Christians to not believe in miracles. It is a requirement of our faith. It's right there. Simon Morris, he's an evolutionary biologist at Cambridge. Interesting statement. He writes, I'm not surprised at those New Testament miracles. I am surprised that they are so few. What else would you expect when the creator visits his creation? Creation, that is a very Christian world. We believe that somebody created everything that we see. So now let's talk about that miracle. The other thing that you guys said that you wanted to talk about, you said evolution, but it's the miracle of creation. The top vote getter 
As you can see here, it's been an ongoing debate. I don't know why people think this is like, means anything to anybody, but you had the Jesus fish, the Darwin fish, which my evolution professor had right there on his door. That was weird, you know, 1993. I'm like, first time I ever saw that. Then you got the truth, eating the Darwin fish. Oh, Christians, we got them. And then they got the dinosaur eating the whole thing. So, uh, and somebody had put dinosaur on the list. It was very down at the bottom, but we're going to squeeze that one maybe into this, this discussion tonight too, because it all fits together. For Christians, our creation story, it's, it's when you guys do your annual Bible studies and you start reading the Bible cover to cover and you read you know, Genesis, which is about as far as you get every time on that. Um, Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, we've all read that, right? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty and darkness covered the deep waters. Then God said, let there be light and there was light and God saw that the light was good. It's a very familiar story. Every day, you know, God creates something else. There's day and there's night. And then he separates the water and the land. Then he creates vegetation. Then he creates the sun and moon, which I've always thought is interesting because you've got vegetation somehow before the sun and the moon. Then he creates the birds and the fish. And then he creates the land animal. And it's good and it's good. And that's what we hear every time. And then lastly, we get to chapter 2. God creates man. And then he creates his helper, Eve. It's the story. I think everybody knows that, whether you're a Christian or not. That, that's the story in Genesis. Within the Christian church, there's three or four or five, I don't know how many, but, but some basic camps of Christian thought around creation. And, and I don't know everybody's views in this church on this because we talk a lot about the gospel and not as much about some of the non-essentials. But I would imagine all of these views are somewhere represented in this church. The first one is young earth creationists. And I mentioned this, you should know what it is. It's that God created the earth and all life that we know in six literal calendar days. That's a young earth creationist. Now, I'm going to step over here because within that there's all different kinds of thoughts and thinkings and, and branches of that. But within that there is one little branch that says dinosaurs are a hoax. And so I would that was one of the questions on the list, so let's talk about that a little bit here. And so the theories for those that think that dinosaurs are in fact a hoax is that God put the fossils in the earth so that you would think that the earth is billions of years old, which is a big theological issue because God is never the author of deception. So whether that's true or not, that's not why God do it because God is not the author of deception. I read some of the others. Dinosaurs were created on day six. They were all vegan and they were killed during the flood. And another one was, others say that they were brought onto the ark, but went extinct shortly thereafter due to climate change or human hunting. So just mention that because we, we need to address that. So that's the first, young earth creationists. The next camp of Christians is the old earth creationists. They accept the much longer time scale that mainstream science professes, the billions of years for the creation of the earth. But they say that God intervened miraculously at certain points along that long history. Uh, that's what they believe. But they still hold to humanity, Adam being created directly by God. No evolution in the old earth creationists. That's number two. Number three, this is a really kind of a generic term, but it's the intelligent design community. And within the intelligent design people, they accept most of science's understanding on creation and evolution, but believe that natural laws are not enough to explain the development of life and point to miraculous interventions by an intelligent designer. And then the fourth one is evolutionary creationist. There's other words for, I think, uh, deist creationist or deist evolutionist. 
they believe that God has created throughout natural history using regular patterns that can be described scientifically. That God caused a chain of events, a chain of cause and effects that bring about the world we see today. Essentially, God wrote a, a master computer program that set everything into motion, these laws and rules, and that's how we get the world and people and everything that we see today. And within that, that's the major four, but you've got day-age creationists. They go to the Bible and they say, well, a day is like a thousand years, and so it's not, you know, six days, it's six million years or whatever. You've got gap creationists that fill in some of the gaps. Progressive creationists, and I'm guessing in this room, like I said, I, I bet all of those things are accounted for. Each of those people, though, will argue that their approach to the miracle of creation is the one true belief. I know because each of them have their websites, and I spent lots of time on all of them this week, and you should too. It's good to read everyone's thoughts and opinions in science. It's a popular phrase among preachers. It's if you believe it to be 51% true, preach it like you believe it 100%. I can't do that. I want to be honest. I want to be transparent. And so instead of doing that, I'm going to just share some stuff with you to let you chew on and start building up some of that old man strength. And so let's go to the Psalms again. When we read them, they read, and everyone understands them to be songs. They're, they're poetry. And so when we read the Psalms, we expect metaphors, and we expect allegory and visual images and, and words. Psalm 139, my favorite of the Psalms, you knit me together in my mother's womb. It's allegory. It doesn't mean that God literally came down and climbed up inside your mama and got out the needle and thread and sewed you together. It, it's allegory. It's a metaphor for God being the creator. But when we go to the book of Luke in the New Testament, it starts out, this is an eyewitness account. You can't read that as poetry. You have to take it as eyewitness historical accuracy, as, least, as best as the witnesses were accurate. No room left for an allegorical poem. So the difficulty comes then when the genre is not easily identified. And one of those books of the Bible is at least Genesis 1, that one's very much up for debate. Again, I know because I went to these websites. And it can sound in part like a summary of how God actually historically made the word world, but it can also sound like a song in some parts, the repetition, it is good, it is good, or the flowery kind of language and your words that it uses. Then, you want to really get complex, we've got to throw into the mix that in Genesis 2, it summarizes the creation story, but changes up the order of events. And so now we've got this, this dichotomy here of two different kind of tellings of that creation story. I started by saying Richard Dawkins, the, the famous atheist, and Ken Ham, the young earth creationist, they couldn't be more diametrically opposed. They don't agree on much of anything, but they both agree that you can't be an evolutionist and a Christian. I want to say to the people in the room who are, I've searched the Bible, and I can't find that requirement anywhere, and so there's hope for that. Romans 10, 9, I read earlier, it doesn't say if you believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead and believe in a literal six-day creation, you will be saved. That's not there. It's you believe in the resurrection, you will be saved. And so let me state what I've stated the last couple of weeks in this series, and I'm going to say it again. We don't have to agree on everything to be a church and to be a community. In fact, I think we'll be a much stronger community when we can debate and discuss these things openly. 
Psalm 19.1. I read it earlier. It says, the heavens declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. Psalm 19.7, just six verses later, says the law of the Lord is perfect. And so you've got the heavens, nature and science. You've got the law of the Lord, scripture, the Bible. God is the author of scripture. God is the author of nature. Both, author, or both nature and scripture then are revelation from God about God. And so just like you and I have to do the work to interpret scripture, like we talked about two weeks ago, we got to go in and we got to find the wisdom. We got to find how all of scripture points to Jesus. Science is the work of interpreting nature, God's word through nature. And sometimes scientists get the interpretation right eventually over years and years and centuries sometimes. But along the way, just like we have misinterpretations in Scripture, God's Word, there are misinterpretations in science as well. Scientists are not perfect because, well, none of us are perfect. After all, scientists are the same people. I was watching the hurricane come in this past week or tropical storm. Scientists are the same people to decide naming a storm a watch or a warning was a good idea. I'm 45 years old. I still don't know the difference between a watch and a warning. I mean, if, if I was a scientist, I would name it dangerous and not all that bad. But the scientist gave us a watch and a warning. For the record, because it seems to matter, and, and I'm new to church in some senses, and especially the role of a pastor, but uh, it seems like everybody wants to know what the pastor's stance on things are, and I don't think it should matter as much as it does. But for the record, I do accept the scientific consensus on the age of the universe and the age of the earth, and I do still hold on to most of the biology I learned in college, that there was some kind of process of natural selection over a very long period of time, long period of time to us, but a very short period of time to God who's lived for eternity. But here's the thing. When I think of the complexity, the vastness, that expanse of time, the billions and billions of years, it doesn't diminish my belief in God. In fact, it moves me, unlike just about anything else, to worship my Creator. So I do have that, whatever you think of it. But I also completely reject the theory of evolution as an all-encompassing philosophy. And so let me write what one commentator wrote, or read to you what a commentator wrote. He says, if evolution is elevated to the status of a worldview of the way things are, then there is a direct conflict with biblical faith. But if evolution remains at the level of scientific biological hypothesis, it would seem that there is little reason for conflict between the implications of Christian belief in the Creator and the scientific explorations of the way which, at the level of biology, God has gone about, create, God has gone about creating the processes. Belief in a biological process of natural selection and belief in evolution as a worldview are two entirely different things. There's a lot of issues with the theory of evolution, and I acknowledge those clearly. How did something come from nothing? There are no answers for that in evolution. Where does the first living cell come from? There are no answers of that. Why aren't there certain fossil records in the transitional state? There's really no answers that are good for that. So those are some problems with evolution and the theory, but that's not the problem that I'm talking about with you tonight. I'm talking about not the biological process, but the evolutionary worldview. The view that everything about our human nature, 
our ability to love, to act, to think, to form beliefs, our ability to use language, to have convictions, our ability to make music that's beautiful, to make art that just draws our attention, the ability to debate philosophy, even the ability to believe in God. Outside of a creator, within evolution, that's just a random genetic mutation. Outside of a biblical creator, the universe is devoid of a purpose. And I just can't accept a world without a purpose. When I think about moral consciousness, we were talking as a family about that today or yesterday, or when I think about abstract thinking or altruistic actions, how can we not see purpose? And so tonight, let me tell you, we should be skeptical. Not of science, not of quantifiable data-driven results, but we should be skeptical of the misuse of the science. Science has no answers to our purpose. Science will never find answers to our purpose. Science can tell us a lot about the way the world is, but it cannot tell us why it's like that. Furthermore, no one should want an evolutionary worldview to be the standard. I was watching a documentary last week on PBS. I don't know if you've ever heard of the eugenics movement in the United States. This movement that was in the early 1900s is not a lot different than Nazi Germany that was happening at the same time. We began breeding for positive traits within our own country, within this movement. They began to push for legislation for forced sterilization for those who held undesirable traits. And guess who those people were? It was the poor, it was the impoverished, it was the handicapped. They had the undesirable, let's get them out of society. That is an evolutionary worldview. Last time we gathered, I beat up the church a little bit about picking and choosing the laws of Scripture, how we, we follow some rules but not others, yet we say we follow them all. The secular world does the same thing with their interpretations of the laws of nature. We all know how politicized science has become in the last couple of years, global warming, pandemic, all of that stuff. But since I'm already digging a hole tonight, let's go into abortion a little bit. There is science that suggests strongly that a child in the womb can feel pain. That's the science, yet pro-choice advocates selectively dismiss that scientific data. They're interpreting God's law of nature one way, or scientific law of nature one way. Then over here, you've got the Department of Health and Human Services, and they put out brochures that an alcohol-free pregnancy is the best choice for your baby. So, we care about the baby in the womb? Do we not care about the baby in the womb? Which is it? If life doesn't begin in the womb, and we say that's, that's where we're at, then when does life begin? Well, science doesn't necessarily answer that extremely well. Some will say it's consciousness. That's when life technically begins. Well, when do we have consciousness? Science still hasn't answered that. It's consciousness is that when we first start forming those core memories that we can think of at 45 years old and think back to, oh yeah, I remember being three and a half and you know, the dog biting me or whatever. And so if that's consciousness, then why isn't the mother's choice to end life of a six-month-old who won't sleep through the night and just getting on her nerves? Or why, why the three-year-old who's been diagnosed with autism, let's end that, that's just going to be too much work, and they won't remember it anyway because they don't yet have core memories and consciousness. So we all kind of pick and choose, whether it's the laws of the Bible or whether it's the secular world and it's the laws of nature. And so I will say to my evolutionary worldview friends who are out there that may be listening tonight or even here, 
I think deep down you don't believe in that as a worldview philosophy either. That's why you have sympathy for the poor and the weak. That's why you know the difference between good and bad in your heart. Where did those convictions come from? Because they aren't beneficial to evolution. Let me have somebody say it a whole lot better than me, though. C.S. Lewis, book, The Weight of Glory, he says it like this. If minds are wholly dependent upon our brains, and brains on biochemistry, and biochemistry, in the long run, on the meaningless flux of the atoms, I cannot understand how the thought of those minds should have any more significance than the sound of the wind in the trees. The existence of reason itself argues for a transcendent capital M, mind. So our difficult question tonight, must we choose between God and science? I hope I've answered that as a, as a resounding no. We can choose both science and the creator of science. As I mentioned, I've earned some old man's strength in this area, and so as I had this week to kind of process and think about evolution and all the stuff around it. It doesn't really exhaust me. Actually, it excites me a little bit. When I think about the Big Bang, which is, you know, supposedly the God killer, doesn't scare me to think about that. I've tried to have understanding of the God particle. It's, it's way beyond my understanding, but it is pretty cool to think about, but it doesn't upset me when I think about this supposed God particle. And maybe there'll be future discoveries that, oh, that's going to crush religion. The faith will be done because we've discovered aliens, and if Jesus saved the people here, how did he, what do we do about these aliens? Did he save them? I, I'll be okay. I'm getting that old man's strength when it comes to science and God because, in fact, Science is one of the things for me, one of the greatest things for me, that instead of pushing me away from the divine creator, just drives me deeper and deeper into worship. I'm going to ask the band to come up so we can do that tonight. But I want to go back to God's written law, the Bible, Genesis chapter 3. God's written law. We get to chapter 3, you know the story, human beings screw up, we fall. You can think it's literal or allegorical. It doesn't matter so much for the discussion tonight. You've got to work through that on your own. You're welcome here at Refuge, but there's a fall in Genesis chapter 3, in God's written law. If we go to God's natural law, his other revelation, well, we know there's a fall too. It doesn't take much to look around and you see that the world has fallen. There's wars, there's natural disasters, there's viruses, there's human selfishness. There's frivolous indulgences while other people suffer. And most of all, there's death. And so God's written word, God's natural law, we see the fall. Karen and I both were attracted to a quote in a TV show we were watching on Apple TV called The Morning Show. It's pretty good, one season if you want to watch it. In the last episode, um, one of the guys makes the quote, you think people in one town over are going to be any better? She's wanting to leave and get the heck out of New York City. He says, you think people in one town over are going to be any better? And he says, no. Human nature, it's surprisingly universal, and it's universally disappointing. It's the result of the fall. I love science, if you can't tell. I love thinking about the universe. 13 billion light years away is the furthest known star. 13 billion, not miles, light years, light traveling. That's a, I don't know, that's a long butt way away, 13 billion light years. Sometimes I'll just lay in bed. I literally will just lay there and try to process there being nothing, which you can't even logically process that there was once nothing, because if there's nothing, there's nothing, but yet somehow something came from nothing. It just blows my mind. 
Or I love thinking about the human brain and, and what it causes us to do and the cool things and the weird things. And as I think through all of that stuff, I start to think about the finiteness of my own mind, how limited my understanding and my thinking is. And then I think about how little science has figured out about this universe that we live in. We don't know a fraction of a fraction of a fraction of understanding about this world and thus the power and majesty of God, of all the natural processes that he created, of time he created, the space, matter that he created, the biology, energy. As we sang earlier, when I think about that stuff, it's awestruck, I fall to my knees and humbly proclaim, you are amazing, God. And so I think about that God and I worship. And then I think about that God who is so big, I can't even fathom it, so powerful, so beyond my comprehension. And that God came to this little pale blue dot to hang on a cross. And as he hung on the cross, that God that is indescribable was thinking about Brian by name as he paid for my sins. Bible says as high as the heavens are above the earth, and science still doesn't know how high the heavens are above the earth. It says as high as the heavens are above the earth, 13 billion light years away or more, so great is his love for me. Bible says as far as the east is from the west, infinite. That's how far he's removed my sin. It's astronomical grace. And when I think God's majesty and I think of that God saving me while well, I scarce can take it in, but it moves me to worship. And that's my hope for you tonight, that it moves you to worship our God. So let's stand as we end tonight and do that together.